Welcome to the Beyond Ordinary Women podcast. Every two weeks, we post podcast versions of one of our free training videos, or you can access our videos now at beyondordinarywomen.org. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Kay Daigle of Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries. Welcome to our podcast, our video, however you're tuning in. We're so happy to have you with us. Today, our special guest is Dr. Sandra Guan from Dallas Seminary. She is professor of arts and media there. But I noticed on your bio that it said that you advocate for thinking that transforms. And I thought that is so true of what this new book Hmm. is all about. Sandra's newest book, which comes out on October the 10th, is Nobody's Mother, Artemis of the Ephesians in Antiquity and the New Testament. So welcome, Sandra. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Now that title, Nobody's Mother, is somewhat mysterious to me, especially before I read the book, it was, it was more mysterious. So how is it related to Artemis of the Ephesians and who is she anyway? Yeah, great question. Well, let me start by saying what in the world Artemis has to do with the New Testament and why should uh, the leaders that are listening to your uh, work here care about who this goddess of antiquity is? So if we read in the book of Acts, we see that when Paul goes to the city of Ephesus, there uh, the context there, there's just been a huge magic burning, or the, I shouldn't say just been, there's a big magic book burning where his gospel ministry is cutting into the magic workers uh, trade and they're coming to Jesus and, and burning up expensive books. And right after that narrative, we have a narrative about some silver workers who are upset that Paul's gospel work is cutting into their economic trade. So the city of Ephesus is home of the greatest wonder of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of Artemis of Ephesus. And that's relevant because people come from all over the empire to worship her, to pay homage to her. And if the gospel ministry is taking off and people aren't as interested in buying, then it cuts into their incomes. And they're upset about it. And enough that a lot of people, like a lot of people fill the whole theater, which holds thousands. And for two hours, they're yelling, chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And this makes Paul decide he was already going to leave Ephesus where he's been for a while, but it just makes him decide early to take off for Macedonia. Now, fast forward to Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy. It's a personal letter. It's not written to the whole church like the book of Ephesus is. And he says in chapter one, verse three, I left you in Ephesus to teach certain people not to teach false doctrine. And then if we get over to the second chapter, you have the phrase, basically Paul's saying, I'm not allowing a woman or maybe a wife to teach, or then there's another word. We don't know if it's authority or usurp authority, right? All those thorny verses about what women couldn't, couldn't do in the church followed by his logic, which is for Adam was first and then Eve was deceived, but a woman will be saved through childbearing if basically she continues in the faith. Well, my focus of this book is what does saved through childbearing mean? Because 
It's been taught particularly in the Protestant church, especially since the Reformation, that it's saying a woman can't teach in the church, but her primary role is to have babies at home. And that's how she will exercise her spiritual gift. That was a challenge for me because my husband and I went through 10 years of infertility and pregnancy loss, and I had totally bought into the idea that my highest calling was motherhood. So you can imagine the spiritual crisis for me when I, I sense I have some semblance of the gift of teaching, which I want to use for the body of Christ, but I'm very ready to spend it at home. And the Lord shuts that door. And it makes no sense. If this is God's highest calling for a woman, why would he even allow that? Well, of course, once I was in that situation, I started noticing how narrow my focus was. That doesn't work for single people. That doesn't work for widowed people. Like, are we saying all of them are just supposed to stay in their nuclear families? All right. That's a long preface, but it tells you my journey to why the phrase a woman will be or, or she, the, the actual phrase is she will be saved through childbearing if they, and then, you know, if they continue in faith, basically. So I had read a book called uh, I Suffer Not a Woman, which was by a couple, both of whom are with the Lord now, but the Kragers who founded Christians for Biblical Equality. And they argued that Artemis of Ephesus was a fertility goddess, a mother goddess. And that is why Paul is talking about motherhood. Well, I read some reviews of that book. It, it seems like it made sense until I read reviews that said, no, 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 that, that is not actually what the evidence about Artemis says at all. So case closed, moved on. Well, I'm in Ephesus for my 20th anniversary with my husband or 25th anniversary, and I am touring through the city and I see a, uh, in stone, the tail of the city carved, and it has the Amazon women as part of how the story is told. And I say, now that that's fourth century, right? That's much later. That's that's not this era. And they're like, no, no, that's that's at the time of the earliest Christians. And I knew there was a huge Amazon Artemis connection. So I that launched me on a journey of we might have looked at some of the writings, but we haven't looked at what's written in stone, the inscriptions. Uh I gotta know who is this woman and now my title makes perfect sense. Nobody's mother. <laughs> I'm showing my hand right from the start that not only is she not a mother goddess at the time of the earliest Christians, she's the exact opposite. She's a confirmed virgin. Most of us are familiar with some of her backstory from Wonder Woman. Uh, but Wonder Woman is much nicer to women than Artemis the Ephesians was. And as we read the stories about her in antiquity or in stone, we see she is just as likely to take out women as men. Um, she is not a feminist. It, you know, I know that's anachronistic, but that's how some have read it. It's really not that at all. She's more just uh, against, uh, for herself at least. She doesn't want to be a mother. She doesn't want sex. She doesn't want babies. But she did, uh, at, at the time she was delivered, she has a twin, Artemis and Apollo are twins. And she's the firstborn, and firstness is in her name, which might be part of what Paul's doing when he talks about Adam being first. He might just be correcting their creation story with the true creation story. And not only that, woman was deceived. So 
get off your high horse <laughs> in terms yeah. of women being so fab. So I think that Paul is equalizing men and women rather than putting women down or elevating men alone. I don't also think that they necessarily were elevating women above men. It was more the preeminence of their goddess. And I think Paul is arguing Jesus is better. And if you can imagine your way back to that city, the number one cause of death for women is childbirth. And if you know anybody who's had a C-section, dead. If you know anybody who's had preeclampsia, dead. Like you didn't survive. The number one cause of death for men was war, but for women, it was childbirth. So here is Artemis. She's the goddess of midwifery. And so as best we can tell at the time of the earliest Christians, a Gentile woman who's about ready to give birth is going to Artemis's temple and she's praying for two things, either save me, deliver me uh, through this, or euthanize me with your painless arrows. Artemis has bow and arrow. But don't leave me writhing for nine days like your mother did when she gave birth to your brother. She actually survived, but the idea of just writhing for days was yeah. was worse than death. Like if you're gonna die, at least kill me quickly and not leave me going on and on. So I think Paul's biggest challenge for new Christians is going to be how do you replace that comfort? And it, he is, I think, actually saying to Timothy, if these women, which maybe we're talking maybe 20 women max. We're not talking a huge church and we're not talking for all time. We're talking about a transition period when the gospel's taking over and the local God is being shown inferior to the preeminent God, Jesus, who is able to deliver people safely. We'll be saved through childbirth. We know, according to Paul's other writings, doesn't mean saved eternally, but the idea of being saved doesn't actually ever have the sense of being sanctified. It has the idea of either being saved physically or eternally. Mm -hmm. Let me go back to something you said, just to make sure that our audience knows who you're talking about. Who are the Amazon women and what do they have to do with Artemis? Great question. So for the longest time, we had thought Amazon women were mythical because, and here's the, been the logic, which I think you'll find ironic. Uh, because they were warrior women. And since we know women don't do war, it must be mythical, right? Well, as it turns out, you can Google it both on National on yeah, National Geographic and Smithsonian Magazine have run articles on how they have found these war the remains of these warrior women uh, around the Black Sea. And they, it, the, as best we can tell, they would copulate with men. They didn't hate men. They just, you know, didn't hang out with them. And the boy babies, they would turn over to anybody else, but the girl babies, they would keep and raise. Um, there is some mythology that says a matson is like without a breast, like a mastectomy or mats. Uh, Amazons is one without a breast. So one idea was that they cut off one breast so that they could more easily fight. I know. I, I had one colleague, if you if you see a photo of Artemis of Ephesus in her manifestation of how she looks, she's got these bulbous appendages all over her front. And one of my wow. colleagues said, what did they cut? Did the Amazons cut them off and give them to Artemis? Is that what those are? But as best we can tell at this point, 
Those are not breasts. They're lacking some essential detail, including the ability to deliver milk. Probably they're Hittite magic bags. And then that shows you that connection to magic and Artemis that we see in the New Testament with the magic burning, magic book burning, and then, you know, the Artemis brouhaha. I had always until fairly recently seen those as two different religious forces in the city and had not actually connected them. But now we're starting to see, I found some inscriptions that were incantations, magic incantations to Artemis. So there appears to have been an Artemis magic connection as well as this midwifery connection. So one thing that's sometimes confusing to us is you have the short-skirted Artemis that's sort of the foundation for Wonder Woman. But then you have this bizarre-looking high-crowned creature with those bulbous appendages on the side or some bees and some maybe bulls-looking, terrified-looking animals. And that is the uniquely Ephesian manifestation of her. But it doesn't mean she's a different goddess. In, I like to say in the same way that Barbie can be both president and architecture, only one is going to show her behind a certain kind of desk in an Oval Office. Wow. And uh, another example might be the Lady Liberty, uh, the statue that we know in New York Harbor is the same statue you can find in Paris, but only one of those has a strong association with immigration. So in a city, in a certain city, gods and goddesses can take on certain nuances. It doesn't mean they're a different god or goddess. Maybe our best parallel is the Virgin Mary and then Mary of Guadalupe. Still the Virgin Mary, but has a very localized legend and feel to it. Yeah, yeah, that certainly makes sense. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I was fascinated when I read your book um, with the various titles or names uh, connected to Artemis that Paul uses for Christ. And I thought that our audience would really like to hear that. I, I thought that was really interesting. So, yeah, Artemis in the inscriptions. Uh, one title that I kept seeing connected to Artemis is the word soteria. Soter means savior. Soteria is the feminine form of that. So I would see uh, Artemis soteria all over the place. One of the reasons some scholars actually don't think Paul wrote 1 Timothy is because some of his vocabulary is very different from his usual vocabulary. And one of those, for example, uh, most of the time when Paul opens an epistle, he says, grace to you, grace and peace to you, or grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins 1 Timothy first with a reference to Christ as Savior. And to me, if he's telling Timothy, I left you there to teach certain people not to teach falsehood, and he's coming right out saying Christ is Savior, he has pulled out an Artemis title and attributed it to Jesus. So that is perfectly consistent with what Paul would be doing in that letter. And not only that, he pulls out most of the titles of deity in his introduction. You have uh, the feminine form of Lord attributed to Artemis. So you have the masculine form of Lord attributed to Jesus. Uh, one of her titles is manifest. And in one of his other letters to Timothy, you'll see him describing Christ as manifest. So Lord first manifest. Uh, also, uh, Homer refers to her as being the mistress of wild beasts. And you have Paul writing, I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, same, a cognate of the same word, which might give a little hint. Some would say, well, why doesn't Paul just come right out and say, fight Artemis? But remember, Paul's a good Jew. 
So you'll see Luke in his writings referring to Hermes and names of other gods. You will never see Paul mentioning the name of any other god but the Lord. And I think he's a good Jew, even though he isn't telling Timothy, I'm sorry, he's not telling Timothy or Luke, they can't do that. But I think what he's done in his letter to Timothy by pulling out all of the Artemis titles and attributing them to Christ, or most of the titles at least, uh, I think it's the equivalent of saying kryptonite when you want to take down Superman without actually ever having to say his name. Right. That's a great illustration of that. I love that. There are just some words that if if you're in the know or if you're thinking about them, you know. Something similar happens in the book to the Ephesians where he talks about our armor of God fighting the fiery darts, i.e. arrows of the devil. And one of Artemis's weapons, actually the one that she's most associated with, is a bow and arrow. And she, again, she would take women and girls out as much as she would take out boys and men. There's one story about her where there's a goddess, Niobe, and she has 10 boys and 10 girls. And her followers are saying, basically, nanny, nanny, boo, boo, Artemis, your mother only had two kids, you and Apollo, and ours had 10. Artemis looks at her brother, says, you take the boys, I'll take the girls. And they pull out their bows and arrows and kill them all. So she's ruthless. She's not a friend to women. She's just Artemis. She's a friend to herself. One of the concerns of a new Christian in an Ephesian context at the time of Paul is not just going to be that Artemis is going to take them out or hate them or oppose them. The idea in a communal society is that if one of you hacks off the God, the whole society can come down. They can all be punished. So you talk about peer pressure. We have writings that talk about how you know, Gentile Christians in the Roman world would talk about Jews as atheists and say, why do you hate us? Because they interpreted Paul's, you know, uh, yeah, they would, or any Christians really not worshiping their gods as an attack against them because they're putting their neighbors at risk. Lots of social pressure on these Gentile people to follow Artemis instead of Jesus. Yeah, you know, their culture was just so different from ours. And what you're talking about is that the Bible was written to a specific group of people. And in this particular case, a specific person, Timothy, who is in Ephesus. But the Bible is not written for, it's written for us, but it's not written to us. Correct. Can you maybe explain that a little bit? Yes, that that is such a great concern. And it's a totally legit concern because here's what we don't want to do. We don't want to have something that looks hard for us to do and explain it away by backgrounds. But the challenge here is, first of all, we didn't begin with the backgrounds and the culture. We began with the book of Acts. We got our clues from the book of Acts that the two things that are big influences in Timothy's world are magic and Artemis and actually probably magic relating to Artemis. So we get the clues from there first and then start looking around to what's in the inscriptions that can flesh out magic at the time of the earliest Christians. What's in the, what's in the inscriptions, which is the writings in stone that can tell us something. And also there's some, this helps us reconcile Why would Paul tell the Corinthians, I want you to think about staying single. And he would tell Timothy at Ephesus, I want you to advise the young widows to get married. It can resolve sometimes 
backgrounds can help us resolve seeming contradictions or something that doesn't make sense. Another real challenge when it comes to the passage we have in mind here is if Paul is saying he doesn't want women to teach because they're more easily deceived, then we would not expect him to say, but they can teach the most vulnerable people in the church, which is the children. Like they're either deceived in their ability to teach or they're not deceived, you know, and so it helps us again, reconcile. And I'm not the first person to raise that question. That's just been a nagging question. But also there've been linguistic scholars who said, well, but saved doesn't mean sanctified. Uh, So that helps resolve that. One more thing I will add to is that after Paul gives this promise to Timothy that they will be saved, she will be saved through childbearing if they basically continue in the faith. The very next line is, this is a faithful saying. And as you know, when we got our Bibles, we didn't have verses listed. We didn't have the numbers and we didn't have new paragraphs. You're just making an interpretive choice there. Well, a lot of People go with that must go with what follows, which is this is a faithful saying. If somebody aspires to be an elder, that person aspires to a good thing. But what if this is a faithful saying goes back to a saying, she will be saved through childbirth. What if Paul is borrowing a saying from the Artemis cult and then, but putting his Christian spin on it. And here's something that sort of tips the scales that way. The saying is in the singular, but the qualification is in the plural, which Paul's too good of a grammarian to do that. So she will be saved if they would generally not make sense. But if you put quotation marks around, she will be saved and then add, but they, then it looks like a saying that Paul is explaining. Does Paul have a, have a habit of explaining sayings with his own Christian spin? He sure does. He loves to borrow something from the culture, from the poets, uh, I can think in Corinth, it's, you know, it's good for a man not to touch a woman in quotes and then says, but that each person has, you know, have his own. And, you know, that's not what we're here to discuss. But the point is, there are lots of sayings that Paul has that he borrows and then gives it a Christian spin. Interestingly enough, uh, if we add this one, all of them in some way relate to the idea of eternity or salvation or being saved. So as opposed to being an elder. So again, when Paul's talking about um, salvation, whether it's physical delivery or eternal salvation, then he's pulling out sayings. That's a really interesting point because it 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 doesn't really seem like giving qualifications is a saying anyway. That it doesn't really make sense, does it? I mean, that's right. not something that people just go around saying. Right. I don't know. Good point. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. make a lot of sense to me. So, yeah. but I never thought about it. How many times have I read First Timothy? And, you know, I don't know. Because we usually put a period new paragraph. And if we're going to study it, we don't even include that in the paragraph that we're looking at. Yeah. 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 I think I think we should be reading our Bibles a little bit more with paragraphs and with without the the verse numbers on them yeah. Yeah. I think it makes it very broken up well you know as as you point out in your book and this is related it's not particularly about artemis but you you point out in your book that those of us with a high view of scripture 
uh, have been told that historically women did not have leadership positions in the church. And so this is why we should accept that that's what the Bible is mm-hmm. saying to us. And that the idea that women would have leadership positions is just our culture in, interpreting the Bible for us because our culture is much more open to women doing things in other um, spheres. And yet you provide evidence that they were leaders in the early church. So can you just tell us a little bit about that? I know we don't have time to go into all of it. Sure. But... Yeah, I think I think what's confused us is we've seen uh, the qualification for elder is husband of one wife. And it's, you know, it's he, he, he. And, but what we haven't typically seen is if you go over to chapter five of the same letter we're talking about here, first Timothy, Paul talks about qualifications for widows and it's though having been the wife of one husband, it's the same phrase only flipped and very similar qualifications. And I don't know anybody who says, we're not going to feed you unless you wash the feet of the saints and you've been the husband and one wife. He's giving qualifications for leadership, but because he's using the word widow and because it does relate to food provision, we don't see it as a leadership position. But as uh, we have more and more people looking at social history, we are starting to see evidence that there was an early office in the church that was the office of widow, which was the mothers of the church. So then you kind of get a brain brain explode going. And of course, the church would have mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters or sons and daughters, right? Paul is always thinking of the church as a family. And often we've been presenting it as a single parent family. So I have to say to those linguistics who who say a woman isn't an elder, I'm not going to disagree with you, but I am going to go further and say, because a mother is not a father, she has her own title, but they're both parents. And the word widow in the time of the early Christians didn't just mean you'd lost a husband. It was the catch-all phrase for a without a man woman, which is usually someone who's lost a husband, but it could, and that's, I think that's the root of nuns, right? This is where you're getting nuns. And I did find a fifth century ordination prayer for the office of widow. We have one church father that talks about where they're seated. They're right behind the elders. And if you're looking at the art, I'm finding women in the history of the church holding shepherd staffs. So the metaphor, I know the metaphor for shepherd was applied to women. I'm seeing seventh century women. I saw a number of them in stained glass in Canterbury this summer. I have seen them in stone in Oxford, you know, seventh century women that are holding a shepherd staff because they're shepherding people. And in that case, you know, you have like, uh, Whitby, the Abbey at Whitney was uh, the chief shepherd over that one was a woman over it's a double monastery, which means you had a men's side and a women's side and it was led by a woman. So we are finding more and more out about history uh, and that that some of us, it, we just didn't know. Right. We we're passing down what we were taught. It is true that a lot of our historians have focused on political history. So if you did have a woman, it was a powerful woman like Cleopatra or the mother of Constantine. But more and more as we're getting to the everyday life and looking at inscriptions that have things like tombstones or garbage dumps in Ephesus that have grocery lists, we're learning a lot more about the everyday lives of people. And one of the things that we're learning is 
there was an early office of widow. So I'm just curious, how many inscriptions did you look at when you were wow. researching Artemis? I have no idea, but I will say this, that about six months before I had to revise my manuscript to turn it in, a big fat two volume set of translated inscriptions of all the women they've found uh, meant that I could sit down and in about an hour and a half read through everything relating to females in the Ephesian inscriptions that we have, which I, you know, I did in an hour and a half when it had taken me literally years, but I'm happy for that development because it means more and more people can sit down and read. And that's where I found, oh, I missed one that referred to her in magic, but I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't looking for Artemis in magic. So I missed it. So we know that there are about a half a million inscriptions that have not been processed to include into our English ancient Greek dictionaries. So I think we're going to see our minds explode as we get more and more data coming out of the ancient world. Wow. Oh, that's amazing. It's a great time to be a researcher. <laughs> I suppose so, especially if you don't have to translate everything yourself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's got to slow things down. Yeah. Well, you know, our audience isn't really made up of scholars. You know, that's not who Beyond Ordinary Women is really here for. But we do serve Bible teachers. We serve women in leadership in various roles. But we also serve a lot of just ordinary women in the church who are serving in various, they're mentors to people. Yeah. They they lead a small group in, in so many areas. So for all of these women, what do you think they need to take away from our conversation? What do they need yeah. to learn from your book? Why should they read it? Yeah. Well, first of all, let me thank you for your ministry. I don't think you get thanked very often publicly and it's well-deserved. It's, it's a great service to the church. I send people thank to your you. site. So thank you for making sources accessible. And for someone like me who is training leaders, uh, I'm grateful that somebody else is, you know, taking the next step of my nerd work. <laughs> but what I would take away in terms of what I would say to the average Christian or the person leading other believers is that Jesus is better. And this is what Paul is trying to emphasize in his ministry. No matter what is raging around you, Jesus is always better than the current whatever is hip and hot or undermining good things. Jesus is better and he's he is worth sacrificing for. And I think that is really his the message that Paul had to Timothy to keep the faith. He's trying to help him set up and organize things. But also, there are a whole, whole lot of single women in the church that Timothy is trying to shepherd. And I think it's probably because we tend to be like what we worship. Uh, and they're, they've come out of worship to a virgin goddess. And so he, we can learn from him that he's he's flexible in how he's trying to get the shepherding done. That's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This and and your book is is really super. Uh, and mm -hmm. for all of you out there, she tells a lot about her her um, interests. How and she she shared some of this, but she shared she gives us much more information about how she came to realize that verses like. Uh, she shall be saved through childbearing 
could not possibly mean that a woman's highest calling is to have children. And certainly Jesus called us all to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbors ourselves is, is really, I would say, our highest calling. Right. And it's um, a great and holy calling, but it's not the highest calling, which is to is. follow Jesus, who is better. That's exactly right. Well, I invite all of you who are watching this to browse our resources. We have a number of video podcasts that uh, Dr. Glon has done for us. Some are on the topic of biblical womanhood and women in public ministry. And I'd invite you to go to beyondordinarywomen.org, pull down the resources menu from the main menu and go to the helpful resource list. And it lists all of our various resources there. And you can find some of her other things that she has done for us. So thank you so much again. It's been a privilege to have you. And I hardly wait to find out what you're going to do next. <laughs> Thanks. Or you already know. Yeah. I'm playing around, but you know, it's still in the noodle creativity stage, but maybe something about women in the Bible in their actual historical context. Sounds wonderful. I can hardly wait. Thanks for listening to the Beyond Ordinary Women podcast. You can find more podcast episodes and resources for women in leadership by going to beyondordinarywomen.org. This podcast is produced by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministry. Our production team includes Evelyn Babcock, Kay Daigle, Deborah Herring, and Sharifa Stevens. Theme music, Back in Stride by Don Miller, used courtesy of Christine Miller.